Jesus Begins Public Ministry, Part 21 Jesus and Bethania About six miles from Bethania, the road upon which Jesus was traveling again led through a mountainous country. That evening he entered a little village consisting of only one street, about half an hour in length, which ran across a mountain. Bethania was probably still three hours further on. One could see in the distance the region in which it lay, for it was a low plain. From this mountain stretched north and east a desert of about three hours in breadth toward the desert of Ephron. It was between these two deserts that I saw Mary and her companions tonight putting up at an inn. The mountain is that one upon which Joab and Abisai and the persecution of Abner stopped when the latter addressed them. It is called Amma and lies to the north of Jerusalem. The place where Jesus was faced both north and east. I think it was called Gia. It was opposite the desert Gibeon, which began at the foot of the mountain and stretched off to the desert Ephron. It was about three hours long. Jesus arrived in the evening and entered a house to procure some refreshment. They washed his feet and set before him a drink and little rolls. Several persons soon gathered around him. As he had just come from Galilee, they questioned him about the teacher from Nazareth, of whom they had heard so much from John and other sources. They asked also whether John's baptism was of any value. Jesus instructed them in his usual style, exhorted them to baptism and penance, and spoke of the prophet from Nazareth and of the Messiah. He said that the latter would appear among them, but they would not acknowledge him. Yeah, they would even persecute and ill-treat him. They must indeed remark that the time was come for his advent. He would not appear in splendor and triumph. He would be poor and would walk among the simple. The people of this place did not know Jesus, but they received him well and expressed veneration for him. Aspirants to baptism had passed through the place and had spoken of him. After resting about two hours, he continued his journey accompanied by some of the good people. He arrived in Bethania at night. Lazarus had been perhaps for some days at his house in Jerusalem, on the west side of Mount Sion, the same side as Mount Calvary. But he must have heard from the disciples of Jesus' intended visit to Bethania, for he had come thither in time to receive him. The castle in Bethania belonged in reality to Martha, but Lazarus loved to be there, so he and his sister kept house together. They were expecting Jesus, and her past was in readiness. Martha dwelt in a house on the other side of the courtyard. There were guests assembled in both houses, with Martha or Seraphia or Veronica, Mary Marcus, and an aged woman of Jerusalem who had been in the temple when Mary entered and had left soon after. She had desired to remain but God had other designs for her, and she married. With Lazarus were Nicodemus, John Mark, the only son of Simeon, an old man named Obed, the brother or brother's son of the prophetess Anna. All were, in secret, friends of Jesus, partly through John the Baptist, partly through the Holy Family, and again through the prophecies of Simeon and Anna in the temple. Nicodemus was a thoughtful, inquiring man, was anxiously awaiting Jesus' coming. 
All had received the baptism of John, and all were secretly assembled here at Lazarus's invitation. Nicodemus afterwards served Jesus and his cause, but in secret. Lazarus had sent some of his servants to meet Jesus on the way. About thirty minutes from Bethania, Jesus came up with a trusty old servant who afterward joined the disciples. The old man prostrated on his face before him, saying, I am the servant of Lazarus. If I have found favor before thee, my lord, follow me to his house. Jesus bade him rise and followed him. He was kind to the old man. At the same time, he conducted himself in accordance with his dignity. It was just that way of acting that gave him such power to attract. People loved the man, but felt the God. The servant led Jesus to a porch near a fountain at the entrance of the castle, where all had been prepared for washing his feet and changing his sandals. He wore thick, green, padded soles, which he now exchanged for a pair of stout ones with low leather uppers. From that time he continued to wear these latter. The servant dusted and aired his garments. When the washing of his feet was over, Lazarus and his friends appeared, bringing to Jesus a light refreshment and something in a drinking cup. Jesus embraced Lazarus and greeted the others, extending to them his hand. They served him hospitably and escorted him to the house. Some time after, Lazarus conducted him across the courtyard to Martha's dwelling. The women there knelt veiled before him. Jesus raised them by the hand and told Martha that his mother was coming to await there his return from the baptism. They all went back to Lazarus's, where a meal was awaiting them. It consisted of roasted lamb, doves, vegetables, little rolls, honey, and fruits. On the table were cups, and the gusts reclined on leaning stools two and two. The women ate in an antechamber. Jesus prayed before the meal began and blessed the food. He was very grave, even a little sad. During the repast, he said that a time of trial was approaching, but he was about to begin a toilsome journey which would come to a bitter end. He exhorted them, if they were his friends, to stand firm, for like himself they would have much to suffer. He spoke so feelingly that they all wept, though they did not perfectly understand him and knew not that he was God. That want of understanding on the part of those around Jesus is always a subject of wonder to me, since I have seen innumerable testimonies of his Godhead and mission, and I cannot help asking why was not that, which I perceive so clearly, shown to those people. I have seen man created by God, Eve taken from his side and bestowed upon him as a wife, and both fallen from their first innocence. I have seen the promise of the Messiah, the dispersion of mankind, the wonderful providence of God and his mysteries, preparing the way for the coming of the Blessed Virgin. I saw the descent of the blessing, from which the Word became flesh, running like a path of light through all the generations of Mary's ancestors. At last, I saw the angel's message to Mary and the ray of light from the Godhead, which penetrated her at the instant the Savior became man. And after all this, how wonderful did it not seem to me, miserable, unworthy sinner, to see those holy contemporaries and friends of Jesus in his presence. Though loving and honoring him, yet possessed by the thought that his kingdom was to be an earthly one, to see them regarding him indeed as the promised Messiah 
and yet never dreaming that he was God himself. He was to them only the son of Joseph and Mary, his mother. None guessed that Mary was a virgin, for they knew not of her supernatural, immaculate conception. Indeed, they did not even know of the mystery of the Ark of the Covenant. It was already a great deal, and a sign of special grace, that they loved him and acknowledged him. The Pharisees, although they knew of the prophecies of Simeon and Anna at the time of his presentation in the temple, and who had listened to his wonderful teaching in the temple, when still only a child, were perfectly obdurate. They had indeed made some inquiries at the time concerning the family of the child, and later on concerning his instructors. But they esteemed him and his relatives too poor, too insignificant, too despicable. They wanted a Messiah in every way magnificent. Lazarus, Nicodemus, and many of the followers of Jesus entertained the secret belief that he was called with his disciples to take possession of Jerusalem, to free the Jews from the Roman yoke, and to establish them in a kingdom of their own. Truly it was then as now, when each man might look upon him as a savior who would restore his fatherland to freedom and once again establish the beloved old government. Neither was it known at that time that the kingdom which alone can help us is not of this world of penance. Yes, they indeed rejoiced for the moment in the thought, now it will soon be all over, with the glory of such or such a tyrant. They did not, however, venture to mention their thoughts to Jesus. They stood in great awe of him. Besides, they could tread a fulfillment of their hopes in no trace of his behavior, and no word that he uttered. After the meal, all retired to an oratory, where Jesus offered a prayer of thanksgiving that his time, his mission, was now to begin. It was extremely affecting, and all shed tears. The women were present, but standing back. They recited together the usual prayers, after which Jesus gave them his blessing, and was conducted by Lazarus to his chamber for the night. This was a large room divided off into alcoves where the men slept. But these alcoves were more beautiful than those of ordinary houses. The beds were not rolled up as they were in general. They were placed on a kind of stationary platform with a cornice in front ornamented with hangings and fringes. A fine mat was rolled up on the wall by the bed. It could, by means of a pulley, be drawn up or let down before the bed, thus concealing it when not in use, and forming a kind of slanting roof. Beside the bed was a small table, and in a niche of the wall stood a tall water vessel, along with a smaller one for drawing and pouring. A lamp projected from the wall, and on the arm of the same hung a toilet towel. Lazarus lighted the lamp, cast himself on his knees before Jesus, who again blessed him and departed. Silent Mary, the simple sister of Lazarus, did not make her appearance. Before others, she never uttered a word, but when alone in her room or the garden, she talked aloud to herself and to all the objects around her, as if they had life. It was only before others that she was perfectly mute and still, her eyes cast down, she looked like a statue. On being saluted, however, she inclined and was very polite in all her bearing. When alone, she busied herself in various occupations, attending to her own wardrobe and keeping all things in order. She was very pious, though she never appeared in the school. She prayed in her own chamber. I think she had visions and conversed with apparitions. Her love for her brother and sisters was unspeakable, 
especially for Magdalene. From her earliest years, she had been what she now was. She had a female attendant, but she was perfectly neat in her person and surroundings, with no trace of insanity to be found about her. No word had as yet been spoken in Jesus' presence in reference to Magdalene, who was then living at Magdalene in the height of her grandeur. On the night that Jesus went to Lazarus's, I saw the Blessed Virgin, Johanna Chusa, Mary Cleophas, the widow Leah, and Mary Salome passing the night at an inn between the desert Gibeah and the desert Ephraim, about five hours from Bethania. They slept under a shed enclosed on all sides by light walls. It contained two apartments. The front one was divided off into two rows of alcoves, of which the holy woman took possession. The back served as a kitchen, before the inn was an open hut in which a fire was burning. Here the male attendants slept or kept watch. Innkeeper's dwelling was not far distant. On the following day, Jesus taught walking about the courtyards and gardens of the castle. He spoke earnestly, feelingly, and lovingly, though his manner was full of dignity and he uttered no unnecessary word. All loved him and followed him, though not without a sentiment of awe. Lazarus approached him the most confidently. The other men were more reserved. They gazed on in admiration. Part 22 Jesus' Interview with Silent Mary his conversation with his mother. Accompanied by Lazarus, Jesus went also to the abode of the women, and Martha took him to her silent sister Mary, with whom he wished to speak. A wall separated the large courtyard from a smaller one, which latter, however, was still quite spacious, and it was an enclosed garden adjoining Mary's dwelling. They passed through a gate, and Jesus remained in the little garden while Martha went to call her silent sister. The garden was highly ornamental. In the center stood a large date tree, and all around were aromatic herbs and shrubs. On one side was a fountain, or rather a kind of tiny lake, with a stone seat in the center. From the opposite edge to the seat was laid a plank, upon which Silent Mary could cross, and there sit under an awning, and surrounded by the water. Martha went to her, and bade her come down into the garden, for there someone was waiting to speak to her. Silent Mary was very obedient, Without a word, she threw her veil around her and followed her sister into the garden. Then Martha retired. Mary was tall and very beautiful. She was about thirty years old. She generally kept her eyes fixed on heaven. If occasionally she glanced to one side where Jesus was, it was only a side glance and vaguely, as if she were gazing into the distance. Even when speaking of herself, she never used the pronoun, but always as if she saw herself as a second person and spoke accordingly. She did not address Jesus, nor cast herself at his feet. Jesus was the first to salute, and they walked together around the garden. Properly speaking, they did not converse together. Silent Mary kept her gaze fixed on high, and recounted heavenly things, as if passing before her eyes. Jesus spoke in the same manner of his father, and to his father. Mary never looked at Jesus, Though while speaking, she sometimes half turned to the side upon which he was walking. There was more a prayer, a song of praise, a contemplation, a revealing of mysteries than a conversation. Mary appeared as if ignorant of her own existence. Her soul was in another world, while her body lived on earth. Of their speech during that interview, I can remember that, 
glancing intuitively upon the incarnation of Christ, they spoke as if gazing upon the most holy trinity acting in that mystery. Their simple and yet profoundly significant words I cannot recall. Mary, gazing upon it, said, The Father commissioned the Son to go down to mankind, among whom a virgin should conceive him. Then she described the rejoicings of the angels, and how Gabriel was sent to the virgin. And so she ran through the nine angelic choirs, who all came down with the bearer of the glad tidings, just as a child would joyously describe a procession moving before its eyes, praising the devotion and zeal of all that composed it. Then she seemed to glance into the chamber of the virgin, to whom she spoke words expressive of her hope that she might receive the angel's message. She saw the angel arrive and announce the coming of the Savior. She saw all and repeated all, as if uttering her thoughts aloud, gazing the while into the distance. Suddenly she paused, her eyes fixed on the virgin, who appeared to be recollecting herself before replying to the angel, and said very simply, Then... Thou hast made a vow of virginity. Ah, if thou hast refused to be the Lord's mother, what would have happened? Would there have been found another virgin? Then addressing her nation, she exclaimed, Had the virgin refused, long wouldst thou, O orphaned Israel, still have groaned. And now, filled with joy by the virgin's consent, she burst forth into words of praise and thanksgiving, rehearsed the wonders of Jesus' birth, and addressing the divine child, said, Butter and honey shalt thou eat. She again repeated the prophecies, recalled those of Simeon and Anna, etc., spoke with the different personages connected with them, and all this as if gazing upon those scenes contemporary with them. At last, descending to the present, she said, speaking as if alone, Now goest thou on the painful bitter way, etc. Although she knew that the Lord was at her side, yet she acted and spoke, as if he were no nearer to her than all the other visions just recounted. Jesus interrupted her from time to time with prayer and thanksgiving, praising his Father and interceding for mankind. The whole interview was expressly touching and wonderful. Jesus left her, relapsing into her usual silence and exterior apathy. She returned to the house. When Jesus went back to Lazarus and Martha, he said to them something like the following, she is not without understanding, but her soul is not of this world. She sees not this world, and this world comprehends her not. She is happy. She knows no sin. Silent Mary, in her altogether spiritual state of contemplation, was really and truly oblivious to all that happened to her or around her. She was always thus abstracted. She had never before spoken in the presence of others, as she had just done in that of Jesus. Before all others she kept silence though not from pride or reserve. No, it was because she saw not those people interiorly, saw not what they saw, but gazed upon redemption and the things of heaven alone. When at times accosted by a learned and pious friend of the family, she would indeed utter some words audibly, though without understanding a single word of what had been said to her, not having reference to or connection with the vision upon which she was interiorly gazing at the time, she heard without hearing, Consequently, her reply, bare upon what was then engrossing her own attention, mystified her hearers. It was for this reason that she was regarded by the family as a simpleton. Her state necessitated her dwelling alone, for her soul lived not in time. 
She cultivated her little garden and embroidered for the temple. Martha brought her her work. She was skillful with her needle, which she plied in uninterrupted musing and meditation. She prayed most piously and devoutly, and endured a kind of expiatory suffering for the sins of others, for her soul was often oppressed, as if the weight of the whole world was upon her. Her dwelling was comfortably fitted up with sofas and different kinds of furniture. She ate little and always alone. She died of grief at the immensity of Jesus' passion, which in spirit she foresaw. Martha spoke to Jesus of Magdalene and her own great anxiety on her account. Jesus comforted her, telling her that Magdalene would certainly be converted, but that she must on no account weary of praying for her and exhorting her to changes her life. At about half past one, the Blessed Virgin arrived with Mary Chusa, Leah, Mary Salome, and Mary Cleophas. The servant had in advance announced their approach. Martha, Seraphia, Mary Marcus, and Susanna proceeded to that hall at the entrance of the castle where Jesus, the day before, had been received by Lazarus. They took with them refreshments and the vessels necessary for washing their guests' feet. After welcoming the newly arrived and performing for them that duty of hospitality, the latter changed their dress, lowered their skirts, and put on fresh veils. All were clothed in undyed wool, yellowish-white or brownish. They partook of a light refreshment, and then accompanied Martha to her house. Jesus and the men now presented themselves to salute the holy women, after which Jesus retired for an interview with the Blessed Virgin. He told her most earnestly and lovingly that he was about to begin his career, that he was now going to John's baptism, whence he would return, and once more be with her for a short time in the region of Samaria, but that then he would retire to the desert for forty days. When Mary heard him speak of the desert, she became very uneasy. She besought him not to go to so frightful a place where he would die of hunger and thirst. Jesus replied that henceforth she should not seek to deter him by human considerations, for he must accomplish what was marked out for him. A very different life was now about to commence for him, and they who would adhere to him must suffer with him, that he must now fulfill his mission and she must sacrifice all purely personal claims upon him. He added that, although he would love her as ever, that he was now for all mankind. She should do as he said, and his heavenly Father would reward her, for what Simeon had foretold was about to be fulfilled. A sword should pierce her soul. The Blessed Virgin listened gravely. She was very much troubled, though at the same time strong in her resignation to God, for Jesus was very tender and loving. That evening Lazarus gave a feast, to which Simon the Pharisee and some others of the sect were invited. The women ate in an adjacent room, which was separated by a grating from the men's dining hall, but within hearing of all that Jesus said. He taught of faith, hope, charity, and obedience. He said that they who desire to follow him must not look back. They should practice what he taught and suffer the trials that might befall him, but he would never abandon them. He again alluded to the thorny path before him, to the buffetings and persecutions he would have to undergo, and impressed upon them the fact that whoever called themselves his friends would have to suffer with him. His hearers, deeply touched, listened in wonder to his words, but what he said in allusion to his bitter passion they did not rightly understand. They did not take his words in their simple and literal meaning, 
but looked upon them as the figurative expressions of prophecy. The Pharisees present, though less favorably disposed than the others, found nothing to carp at in Jesus' speech. This time, however, he spoke very moderately.